Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The sermon title here is from the verse in Matthew, things hidden since the foundation of the world. The defeat of evil as the revealing of the mystery. So let's read together Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now let me tell you what I'm doing before I do it, should you get lost. And that is, I think that Paul is in this passage, and and what we're describing is a universal systemic problem. We could just call it sin. We kind of have a problem with sin because it's become so trivialized that when we think sin, you know, we think drinking and dancing and playing cards. And I think we miss the big systemic picture of it. And so I think Paul is picturing this universal problem. And connected with this then, I think we also can miss systemic goodness, the goodness of God that is also being described. So we need to think big picture here. And that's, that's what we're talking about how we can get caught up in systems that in fact obscure our own understanding, but then also how it is that Christ constitutes or the the church or the gospel constitutes an alternative system. And so in Ephesians, Paul describes the particular division, you know, that between Jew and Gentile. But he sees this as an archetype of the universal problem. That is, in in 2.14, he talks about this divide creates a dividing wall of hostility. And he's probably referring to the literal wall in the temple, which is just a series of walls, but the idea is that there is a division from God in the Holy of Holies, in the holy place. There's a division, you know, the court of the Jewish men, the court of women. Finally, on the very outskirts, the Gentiles can't really enter in at all. There's just this series of walls. And so when he says the wall of hostility, he's really describing the law. He's equating this with the law. But this hostility organizes the Jewish world. It organizes the Jewish religion. This is what he says in 2.15, that this is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And so the enmity of the law, which creates a kind of fictional construct, it's not created by God. It's not a reality that God has made. But it's a human system built upon human enmity and violence. You know, this is the point of chapter 2 that we talked about, that Christ abolishes this enmity in his flesh. 
It's not an inherent enmity to the flesh, but he undoes it. It's not from God, but it's cured by God in Christ. And so for a Jew, Gentiles, they're really nothing. They're dirt. You don't even touch them. They're nothing at all, and Jewishness is over and against the nothing of the Gentiles. They're the absolute something. But this enmity of antagonism, this isn't just a problem of the Jews. The organizing hostility for Jews or Gentiles, both is undone in Christ. This is, I'm quoting Paul in 3.6. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. That is, you thought there was a division in humanity and this division defined you. He says, well, actually, that all people are heirs of this promise. This is the archetypical mystery revealed that Paul talks about. This mystery that Judaism actually depended upon. This division. And Christ, then, is reconstituting humanity. Showing the purposes really of creation he says by abolishing in his flesh in 215 to 16 the enmity which is the law and commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity Jewishness depended upon this enmity. But so did Gentileness. The enmity, the hostility marked the dividing wall in the temple, in the religion. Rightly or wrongly conceived, this was the understanding, that Judaism is a case in point of the obscurity that occurs in culture, in religion, founded upon a kind of antagonism. We're blinded by our antagonisms. Paul names this. It's inside, outside, near, far, citizen, alien, something, nothing. And so Paul means for us, I think, to extrapolate. That is, he's giving us this archetypical example. When we understand his example, we're getting at the mystery revealed in Christ. And so there's the mystery. There's the cosmic order of darkness that he talks about. And God's will, God's eternal purposes... Uh, have been revealed. This is what he says in 3.8. The grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. The purposes of creation once obscured behind the mystery of enmity and division are now revealed in a unifying vision in which all things are being incorporated into God. This is chapter 4, 4 to 6. He says there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism. Boy, he's just going through and saying, you know, you thought things were divided up. 
but actually what is divided we now see is a unity. He is the God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. The mystery revealed in Christ is the exposure of the lie of hostility, of enmity, which pictures this split, you know, between Jew, Gentile. Maybe it's a split between the divine, the human, the creator, the creature, life, death, heaven, earth. You know, I think that we just kind of live on these dualisms. And so the mystery revealed is an exposure I'm claiming of the mystification of evil dependent upon alienation and dualism. And so the picture of God's purposes worked out in Christ brings together these things that normally cannot be brought together. Look at chapter 4 verse 7 to 10. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? You know, to speak graphically, he went to heaven and he went to hell. He went to the heights of heaven and he went to the depths of the earth. He's covered everything there is to cover. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Christ brings together heaven and earth, the lower regions of the earth, and the highest regions of heaven. He brings together divine and human. You know, heaven remained closed. Divinity remained veiled, for the most part. And Paul describes Christ as revealing the mystery remain closed in 3.5 to every previous generation. The mystery, the secret hidden from the foundation of the world. Matthew pictures, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so what is it that causes this hiddenness, this division? Well for the Jews it's their religion, at least their understanding of their religion. Uh, in its division between Jew and Gentile. And it's obscured God's purpose, his rule over all things. The prophets had told them that God is the God of all people. And they thought he was their God alone. They tended to see him and his law as pertaining only to them. And they thought this was comprehensive, covering every possibility. In other words, their religion blinded them. Not because it's inherent to the religion. I'm going to give you an example from the Old Testament of how religion can blind. This is actually from Isaiah 44, 14 to 18. And Isaiah pictures here, you know, the man grows the cedars and the cypress, the oak. He raises it himself. He's the one that raises the trees. He plants a fir tree. And then he takes half of a tree and he burns it. And then the other half he takes and he fashions an idol. Half of it he burns, you know, he emphasizes this several times. He says, oh, well, half of it he cooks his lunch. The other half he makes a god. He's the one that's doing this. And the picture is that 
He fashions the idol, and then he turns, he warms himself, cooks his lunch, and then he turns back and he bows down to the God that he has made. You know, who has made this God? Oh, he has. Who has obscured the fact that he made it? Oh, he has. Peter Berger, who is a sociologist, a Christian sociologist, so he's allowing for a Christian understanding, he describes this phenomenon that, you know, step one is you externalize. You create the idol. You make something. And so externalization is the outpouring of human activity, human being into the world in mental activity of men. And then he does what is called objectivation or objectification or reification. That is that what he's made becomes more than just a piece of wood. It becomes a god. And Berger's point is this is the ultimate thing that happens in religion. And he, he's talking about human religion, but just the way that we falsify our consciences about what we've made. That the universe shaped by our own activity the socio-cultural world, as well as the religious world, takes on a substance that it does not deserve. This falsification can also be described, he says, as mystification. Here is the mystery. The socio-cultural world, which is an edifice of human meanings, he says, is overlaid with mysteries, posited as non-human in their origin. He made the idol, and yet he says, oh, there's God. Berger is saying, well, that's very common. That's what we often do. So this externalization, and then the objectivation. It's the attainment by the products of this activity, and he says it can be physical and mental, of a reality that confronts its original producers as a fact, external to themselves. There's two steps, and the third step, of course, he bows and worships the idol. And Berger calls this internalization. It's the reappropriation by men of this same reality, transforming it once again from structures of the objective world into structures of their subjective consciousness. They're creating their own world here. It's a fictional world. And so Berger concludes it's through externalization that society in general is a human product. It's through objectivation that society becomes reality sui generis. This word sui generis just means, oh, it's a thing in and of itself. The idol maker doesn't claim to have made the idol. You know, oh, no, it just, you know, Aaron says... When Moses asked him, where did that golden calf come from? He said, you know, it just magically emerged from the fire. And so there is a mystery. But of course, the idol maker is creating the mystery. And then it's through internalization that man is a product of society. That is that we make ourselves, we subject ourselves to this thing that we're doing not knowing that we're doing it. And so the notion that religion or society is a sui generis or a self-constituting construct 
It really blocks all questions. You can't ask, who made that idol? It simply poses the social world, you know, in terms of not just religion, but in terms of society and culture itself. It just poses that as a reality unto itself. Now, Berger is summing up a long history here. He says, oh, I'm just doing what Karl Marx did. I'm just doing what Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel did. And they both illustrate, you know, you could do this. This is really what Karl Marx is doing about capitalism. Capital is externalized. We create coins and paper. And then it's reified. Oh, we think it has intrinsic value. And then it's internalized. That becomes our value system. We talked this morning about René Girard. He does the same thing in the terms of religion. You know, the scapegoating is a, is a kind of process that follows this same thing. You know, the scapegoat is in some way all of the problems or all of the sickness or illness is heaped upon the scapegoat. As the Jews were scapegoated in the Middle Ages. Oh, they caused the plague, people said. And in primitive culture and religion, the violence unleashed on the innocent victim served to channel violence to a singular individual, a singular sacrifice. And it actually did, you know, it served to keep violence of all against all controlled. And so there is a sense that the scapegoat delivers from violence. It channels the violence. And as Gerard explains, he says, well, yeah, actually, the, the, the people can really grow crops. They can really go about their daily business because there is not just all-out violence. But, of course, the scapegoat depends upon there being a confounded mystery here. In the first instance, the scapegoat has to be guilty. There is no such thing as an innocent scapegoat. And so there's an obscuring. Oh, the Jews did the Black Plague. Or we mentioned, oh, the Koreans started the fire in the Kanto earthquake. And you can just go through history, the scapegoating. The Jews, the Pharisees, the Romans are blind in their killing of Christ. He is guilty. He has done these things. One man must die that the nation should survive. That all of their sins then, there is the sense that they see Christ as the prime scapegoat. And the killers are blinded to what they're doing. And of course that's what Christ says on the cross. Father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why don't they know what they're doing? Because they're blinded by their own murderous rage. And of course the Gerard becomes a Christian actually reading the gospel. And he says, oh here is the revealing of the scapegoat mechanism. But I think, you know, some people read Rene Girard and said, oh, this just explains everything. But I think we can see the same pattern in Berger, in Hegel, in Marx, of a, a kind of sacrificial violence, a lie, that really stands behind all violence. And I think that's the mystery of which Paul speaks when he's talking about the mystery revealed in Christ. There is a mystifying lie connected to evil in which we blind ourselves. There's an obscuring of origins. There's a kind of false dialectic 
You know, those, the Jews and the Gentiles, the slave and the free, male and female. And this stands behind all violence, maybe all sacrificial religion, at the individual and, and corporate level. You know, we could go through that Hegel, Marx, Peter Berger, their explanation is that they illustrate the same point. Religion is accounted for in human religion in this process. It is the mystification. You know, it's the point where the idolater turns and cooks his lunch. The sacred or numinous in Berger's description begin as perceptions externalized, projected onto the skies and upon persons, you know, shamans. And the external sacred objects acquire a status in social life, magic, incantation. And the religionist, the idolater, doesn't recognize what he's doing. I won't weigh you down with too much illustration here, but Sigmund Freud does exactly the same thing in describing the human psyche. The child externalizes its own image reifies that image, objectivizes it, reifies it, and then perceives itself on the basis of that reified image. There's a seeming impossibility of getting beyond this system. That is, it just seems to describe everything. But I believe this is precisely what Paul is depicting, that Christ has accomplished. He's deconstructed, he's exposed this system. The system in which we obscure origins through a kind of originary violence and originary hostility. We pass from a dialectic of hostility in Ephesians to a unified understanding. So let me conclude. Look at Ephesians 4, 4 to 10. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. Every other system depends upon division, enmity, hostility. But now there is a oneness, one faith, one baptism, one God. There is a unity because we no longer depend upon this violent dialectic enmity. To each one of us was given, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then the passage I read before, he ascended on high. And when he ascends, he leads a host of captives. That is, I think, the principalities and powers. The prince of the power of the air that has kept us hostage. That there is a sense in which he defeats that in his own death, resurrection, and ascension. And he gives gifts to men. God's grace is given in and through his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He ascended and he also descended. There is the harrowing of hell. He goes to Hades, literally, in 1 Peter. The division between Jew and Gentile, heaven and earth, alienation and violence are ended in the work of Christ. Ephesians 2, 17 to 18, the conclusion to the passage we begin with. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Instead of an originary violence, we have an originary peace in Christ. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.